This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. folks, welcome back to another exciting episode of Looking Under the Hood, where we are unpacking the money stuff. I'm Scott Malcolm, and I'm joined by one of the friends to our show, well, someone who's been on the show already, Gemma Sanderson from Cooper Partners, to continue unpacking the illustrious space of self-managed super funds. Welcome back. I'm so excited to have you back. Well, thanks for having me back on. I got so excited about talking about self-managed super funds with you. And then so many questions always come up from people around, should I buy property in a self-managed super fund? How do I do that? Should I be borrowing money in a self-managed super fund? And so I thought, great to get you back so that we can really dive in and talk about the pros, the cons, the everything else in between, probably the good, the bad, the indifferent. So I guess to start, back in the day, and now this is a bit pre my time in the industry, but I remember starting in this industry and and dealing with, uh, I think it was the pre-99 unit trusts. That was pretty much the first start of people being able to buy property in self-managed super, wasn't it? That's a a, a great starting point, Scott, and it it certainly is worthwhile looking at that background because the, uh, and to to see that background, to to see where we were and why we're in the position we are now. So the pre-99 unit trust came out uh, from the perspective back in the 90s, if well, basically, we haven't been able to borrow in superannuation for a long period of time, and it was only in 2007 that that really changed. So, uh, prior to that time, you couldn't borrow, but there was a bit of a, a workaround where if the super fund mm. owned 100% of the shares in a company or the units in a unit trust, then there was no such restrictions on that underlying entity. So, the unit trust could borrow to buy a property, the company could borrow to buy a property. And it was after that strategy gained a little bit of momentum that the government realised what was going on and it was a a mechanism of circumventing the borrowing rules to some degree. So, they introduced the in-house asset rules. So, those in-house asset rules then prevented a super fund from owning 100% of a unit trust where that unit trust had underlying borrowings or had charged an asset. And that happened in 99. So, we talk about a a pre-99 unit trust with the colloquial term. Between 99 and 2009, there were transitional rules in place. So, if people had those pre-99 unit trusts around, uh, they could still operate that trust and they can still now operate those trusts without the um, restrictions in there. It does become more difficult with respect to borrowing in those entities only because if you're making principal repayments, you've got to distribute all of the profit each year from one of those entities up to the super fund. Otherwise, mm. what you don't distribute gets classified as an in-house asset. So, the original investment of the fund back in the 90s into that structure that's still exempt mm. from the in-house assets test. But if you end up repaying any of the borrowings in there, then that is not a d- deductible expense. And so, the only way that you can actually accomplish that is through the 
um, having either a loan outstanding between the two entities or an unpaid entitlement. And if you convert that to units, then you're looking at another in-house asset issue. So they can become a bit more cumbersome to, to use these days. Now, over the period of time from 99 to 2009, there were transitional rules that did enable the super fund to add more money to those trusts to look to repay the debt or reinvest the profits that were distributed. But really from 30 June 2009, any further additions of capital to those trusts, you're looking at in-house assets. Then in 2007, the um, and I'll call them instalment warrant provisions were introduced, which enabled a super fund to borrow to buy an instalment warrant. And the underlying asset in that didn't have to be shares. It wasn't the traditional instalment warrants that you could buy on the market. And it all mm. that came about because of the Telstra float. Good old Telstra. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah. So, Telstra um, was floating, but it was an instalment arrangement that was being put in place. And the consideration then was, well, my super fund wants to invest in Telstra, but really I, uh, the super fund then owes this amount because it hasn't paid the full instalments as part of the, the acquisition. And so is that allowed? Is that a borrowing under the legislation or is, is that permitted? So as an outcome to that, that's where these borrowing rules were introduced and they had a much wider application than just some Telstra shares. So, uh, it meant that you could borrow to acquire property, those sorts of things. It didn't really take off from a self-managed super fund perspective, to be perfectly honest. I feel like until about 2009, people were grappling Mm. with how it would work for shares and then the issue being the fact of this limited recourse nature of the of the borrowing and a lot of lenders not really liking that whole scenario. And then, of course, because you couldn't have legal ownership, the super fund had to have beneficial ownership. So that whole custodian trust side of things, um, I remember back then the the cost of getting a custodian trust drafted from um, some of the lawyers was around the $10,000 mark. So that became quite prohibitive. Yeah, wow. And stepping back on back from that, so the custodian, like what does that actually mean? So effectively, the, the custodian and you know, the preference is with any sort of trustee that it's a company. Um, but mm. so the custodian, that company would hold the asset. So they would be on the legal, on the title for the asset. Um, they hold that on behalf of the super fund. So with a super fund, you've got the entity itself and that has a trustee. So Gemma Super Proprietary Limited as trustee for the Gemma Super Fund. So that's how the, the fund is set up and how it operates. So the bank account for the fund, shares, all those sorts of things, The what's on the title for those and all the holding certificates is Gemma Super Proprietary Limited. That's the legal owner. And, I'm, mm. and the... That's holding it on behalf of the Gemma Super Fund. So, if you if Gem, the Gemma Super Fund wants to borrow to buy a property, and in order to accord with the rules, and it is under um, Section sixty seven of the CIS Act, covers the um, the borrowing provisions. I remember that now that you've said it. Yeah. I remember it. <laughs> and the limited recourse borrowing arrangements fall under sixty seven A and sixty seven B. So, yes. um, so A&B. those are those. Yeah, those are the exemptions. But it was uh, to be a total nerd here. So when the the rules when they came in in two thousand and seven were uh, to introduce sixty seven four like bracket four big A, and then those changed and evolved to sixty seven A and sixty seven B. Anyway, we digress. So if Gemma like the Gemma it. Super I Fund, like yeah, um, if the Gemma Super Fund wants to. Uh, 
buy a property and borrow to do so. And you know, we call it an offer and acceptance in, a, in WA. It's probably called lots of, but the offer to buy the property, if I put on there Gemma Super Proprietary Limited as the owner, then really the super fund is then the legal owner of that and we haven't accorded with the rules. So you need to have another entity inserted really above that where on the, t- on the legal title for that property, it says Gemma Property Proprietary Limited uh, and that's on the title and then underpin that is what's called a, the, this trustee arrangement or custodian trust arrangement, bear trust arrangement. It's called lots of different things, which is saying that Gemma Property Proprietary Limited is holding the property as bear trustee for Gemma Super Proprietary Limited as trustee for the Gemma Super Fund. So it, it's become a, quite an extensive name that you've got to put on there. The preference is, is that full sort of commentary or that full narration is on those offer documents just so that then there's Mm -hmm. zero doubt, particularly if you're dealing with the uh, revenue office. If the asset, sorry, if the loan gets repaid, then you might want to transfer the asset from that custodian, Gemma Property Proprietary Limited, into the name of the super fund because there's no need for that to be in place anymore. So, if you don't have those original, uh, that original narration there, you can encounter issues with the the state revenue. And having to pay state stamp duty again isn't that right oh, so we, we've had a few yeah yeah a, a few clients and i even find it's interesting like there's some good conveyancing solicitors out there but they they often get that wrong so when you're actually working with them i know we've, we've found a few times with clients we'll be saying oh we need this name on the, and they're like oh no, no no we'll just put the super fund on the title no 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 no, no. <laughs> we need all of that we need the whole yep. thing to be noted and then the revenue office again depending on the jurisdiction you're in i guess that's the the other interesting part is that superannuation law is that federal overarching framework that we get to uh, get to play with and, and geek out on as it changes every uh, or every so often. But it's in the state-based revenue offices that actually then manage the title front, which is really fascinating because each state and territory is slightly different. I know in Queensland, um, you can counter all sorts of uh, yeah, double stamp duty if you do things wrong. So um, yeah, it's, it's quite important to get all those elements um, correct. Absolutely right. And I think one of the areas that uh, particularly at the outset of all this, we encountered a lot of issues was actually with the real estate agents. So <laughs> the selling agents trying to sell the property and you're saying, right, this is what this is who's buying it. And they're like, you're kidding me. I'm not putting that on the on the document. Yeah. It's like, well, I've been told by yeah. by Gemma that this is what needs to be on there. So um, so it's and it's quite important to get that right. And you've hit the nail on the head there. The local revenue officers from that sort of land perspective, uh, I know in WA, they just, if you, if you don't get it right, it's just like almost tough. Like you, you've just got to suck it up. Mm. And particularly the other thing we encounter is it's getting the advice correct at the outset. So there's it's not helpful for the client to go out to an auction or to, oh, I put an offer on a house. Okay, well, what's it for? Are you going to live there? Oh, no, it's for the super fund. Well, hang on. What did you put? Yep. How are you going to fund this? Yeah, and I, I think it's so important like have being strategic about it and actually having the conversations beforehand because, again, one of the those requirements is making sure that all the structures are set up prior to the the signing of the contract or, or actually yeah, going in, into the transaction. So I interestingly had a, a chat the other day with our one of our mortgage brokers and a client had gone to an auction on the weekend and was like, oh yeah, I'm going to be able to settle in 14 days. Um, it wasn't a super fund uh, purchase, but even then in current market with borrowing money, 
loans are taking six to eight weeks at, at best, I would at say, best. say, with yep. processing. And they're the straightforward ones. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what we're seeing as well. And and the other thing is, oh, well, I bought it. Okay. Whose name did you put it in? It needs to really be in the name of the of the, a company. Oh, okay, great. We'll put it in the name of the company. Well, is, does the company even exist? Oh, yeah. no, we'll just set it up now. Well, um, no, it, it's just, it's, it's again going through that whole process. And as an example, uh, I've actually got a couple of clients. So I'm just going to take control here and talk about no, what no, I want okay. to do. Um, no. So uh, the, the, these borrowing arrangements, they, they've lost some of their luster. And I think a big element of that is some of the lenders have pulled out of the market. So that has made things a little bit more challenging. Uh, I know certainly in WA that it's, you know, residential property is becomes difficult to get that rate of return and for that that arrangement to wash its face uh, from mm. the perspective of a super fund. And so a lot of people look at less residential property and more the commercial property. And we're certainly seeing the the benefit of having these arrangements in place is for those small businesses buying their business premises. And yep. it, it makes a lot of sense from that perspective. So as long as the metrics stack up and they're not over paying for the asset. So they've got to charge market rent to their business and then they, they can borrow the money. There is a suite of lenders out there who will lend to self-managed super funds where the metrics stack up. And mm. it's just one of those things where um, using your like your your business and your retirement are aligned anyway. And this is another way to invest in a you know capital appreciating asset using your superannuation that can also be of benefit from that business perspective as well. So, we do certainly see the limited recourse borrowing arrangements from that perspective. I've got two running at the moment and mm. it's been great, you know, that whole thing of get the advice and get the structure good to go uh, before you put in an offer and it's fantastic that these the client's accountants contacted us and said, right, what do we need to do? So, we've been speaking to the clients about it. Um, they're, they're pretty much re- like ready to go and in finding those particular properties. So, they know that they're not just launching into something and then we, having to fix it later. I, I agree with that. And look, we've, we've done a lot of strategy in that space around, uh, even recently, we've had a couple of commercial property deals that have stacked up really well. And uh, again, it's it's doing it in the forefront. And sometimes it is about sort of uh, people get excited about these options and go, oh, right, awesome. I'm already already moving in and already trying to paint the walls and install the, the, the business fit out. Um, but it's actually just about getting the strategy right and going, right, okay, let's actually structure this properly, get the right people involved, build your advice team around you, and then make it happen. Because that, that can work really well, um, again, as a strategic position for the business, but also then to be able to pay yourself rent uh, as well as your super contributions uh, if, if you're self-employed. And look, it's not saying that residential property has um, is is not the way to go, but I think as you just said there, Gemma, like it can't be the, the sole asset of the fund. You want to make sure that you've actually got better um, return on investment or better, better diversification happening in the background. The other thing is um, also making sure that I mentioned, you know, washing its face the last thing you want mm. to be doing is you've bought the property, it's paying rent, and but it's not paying enough to meet the the repayments. And so, you're having to throw in extra money into the super fund or that's where your super contributions get, get absorbed substantially towards mm. repaying that debt. Now, that might not be awful because most of the banks will 
uh, set up these arrangements where it's it's not just interest only, it's principal and interest, and it might be over a 15-year period. So at least you're getting some benefit, like you are making those sorts of repayments, uh, but it's it can then, like to your diversification comment, it could be hard to see the wood for the trees because all you've got in there is mm-hmm. a property. And yes, you're paying down the debt, but the diversification just isn't really there um, from that perspective. So that that is it does tend to be one of the, the, the issues that we need to flag with our clients in saying, okay, you know, this is great. Your business can use it. It's got to pay you rent. You can then make the repayments, etc. cetera. Uh, but you need to understand, well, a couple of things. One is that might be a substantial asset then of the fund. Where's the rest of your diversification? And especially if, uh, like a lot of people love these res- residential properties because they've had them in their sort of non-super portfolio. And mm. uh, they, as an overall concept, once you've got your, your home, then like that's a substantial level of your assets that are in property already. So people mm. love people love Australians we love property. We but love the diversification property, we love, love it. it. We absolutely we love, love it. it. Um, but then you know that can become a challenge. The other thing that I would also flag is particularly with the business premises um, people need to understand that you know if the super fund owns those premises. Yes, there might be a borrowing on that for the acquisition of those premises, but that um, property can't then be used as security uh, for an overdraft for the business or things like that. So that even in itself can be the determining factor of saying, "Oh, that's not going to work for us," because uh, particularly where we might be restructuring and like transitioning a business property from the discretionary trust into super or the person's name into super, that's the the sticking point because they can't then use that property for an overdraft or Mm. to secure funding for another property acquisition or the like. So they really need to understand that the super fund, once it's in there, it can never be, it can't be used for security for any other borrowings. Yeah. And I guess that's really important for for any self-managed or for any structure or or directorship or anything. Um, It's that often, which hat are you wearing? So are you the director of your company. Uh, So, I'm the director of money mechanics. Am I acting as a director of my own company at the moment or am I acting as the director of my self-managed super fund trustee company, which I then share that directorship with some uh, of my other loving family members Um, or am I acting as the member of the fund? And so, I think as you said there, it's really important to build sort of that Uh, I was going to say that oasis, that's not the right word, but that... um, The moat. The moat, the moat. Build the moat and add the sharks and then, um, yeah, do not cross it. (laughs) Well, and I think that's absolutely right because, yeah, you've got to put the right hat on of which role that you're taking. Um, And then, I mean, we haven't even, we've spoken about external lenders. We haven't even gone down the path Mm. of the related party lenders. So that position evolved as well with respect to these borrowing arrangements. So again, it's become a lot more tightened in the application of this. Uh, mm. They changed the rules. Uh, of course, they did in 2010. So, 2007, we had this introduction of the instalment warrants, and I'm using inverted commas there, not that anyone can see me, instalment warrants. <laughs> then in 2010, the, the rules sort of changed a bit. And one of the big considerations there was each borrowing arrangement could only be with respect to a single acquirable asset. Mm, so, property was right. fine because it's just, you know, it's a it's a property, uh, but it became then far more challenging for anyone to borrow in their super fund to buy shares. So, uh, it almost really stumped that entirely, unless it was a big shareholding. So, each share in BHP 
wasn't a single acquirable asset. It was like all of the shares in BHP. So 5,000 shares, mm. that was a single acquirable asset rather than just each share of the 5,000. So practically it, it worked, uh, but it just became a real challenge from that perspective because you couldn't have a whole portfolio of shares that you were looking at, which you could do under the, the previous rules. So it became more of a, a property scenario than a share scenario within a super fund. Mm, yeah, and again, there's there's definitely been that lenders looking at it and, again, whether it's around profitability or, or how they, they've structured their own loan books, they've definitely taken a different approach um, on that front. But um, there's definitely, again, structured, um, as you are talking about before, instalment warrants and things that you can use on the on the share market for, for that basis. But I guess really crucial to get your numbers done if you are considering, right, I've, I've heard it's a good idea to buy a property, let's have a look at it and, and see how we go. As you said before, people understand property and they might understand negative gearing and the tax benefit that they've got in their mm. personal marginal tax rate. Um, we've had one of my favourite accountants, you've probably got your favourite accountant, Gemma, but uh, one of mine is, is Jane Hadrill, who's over in Canberra here. She was telling us about how the marginal tax rate rates work. So you could be paying 45 cents in the dollar and you pay your dollar on interest or for investment benefits and you get your 45 cents back. In super, your marginal tax rate is 15% or the tax rate of the super fund is 15%. So you're borrowing a dollar and at best, yeah, yeah so it might even be 10 um, so or below. So, um, again, it, it can work really well in accumulation phase, but you definitely don't want to be carrying debt, in, in my humble opinion, into retirement because that, that whole amazingness of superannuation is that it gets to um, – what, what's the tax rate again, Gemma, when we get to pension phase? Yeah, yeah, zero. Love oh, it. Zero. Yeah, zero. Um, so no tax, no tax. Yeah. But yeah, so it's it's really important to get that that strategy right. And I think negative gearing in itself, um, like you said, people understand it and they think I'm getting a big tax break, and they 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 sure are. But as you mentioned, then you've got to spend a dollar to make forty five cents. So you're still out of mm. pocket fifty five cents. So mm. it's. Um, People think, oh, well, I'm getting all this money back from a property. So you're sort of not, you're out of pocket, you're still out of pocket throughout the process of owning this property. And hopefully at the end, you sell it and you make a capital gain and you get a, you know, in your own name, you get that 50% discount. So you're getting a benefit mm -hmm. there. So I know yeah. that, um, and I'm totally gone off topic here, but you know, one of the things of all these rich people getting benefits of negative gearing and it's again, they're spending a dollar to make 45 cents. So it's it's not that awesome from what people think and property mm. until recently, you know, COVID has caused a property bubble. Um, until recently, certainly in WA, we weren't getting those that capital mm. um, growth, you know, for, for quite some time. Property is not a fly-by-night sort of investment. It's long-term. And so my view is you, when you go into these investments, you need to, or even any structure, what's your exit strategy and how, like, what's the time frame mm. on that? So uh, particularly with the, some of these properties, okay, well, the business will use it and then in five years' time, let's develop it. Okay, that's fine. That all then comes back to how you might fund that because if you borrow so you can borrow to acquire an asset and to do um, a little bit of work on it at the front if you if mm. if you can get there if the if the bank will let you basically but you can't borrow to develop the the mm. property 
Um, so yep. if you were going to develop the property, you'd have to spend, the fund would have to have enough capital in order to do Cash. so. Yep. And, and then you're throwing some more money into this sort of property asset class. The other consideration is that you can't fundamentally change the asset. So um, when the 2010 changes came through with the rules, they had this concept of a replacement asset. Now, that's where it's 67A and 67B, I nerdily told you earlier. So 67A has the main rules about single acquirable asset and custodian and its limited recourse, all those sorts of things. Um, And then it mentioned uh, this replacement asset. And 67B covers off on what replacement assets are. And the replacement asset rules tend to be, well, actually all of them, save for um, subsection eight, now I'm really testing my memory, they're all about you own shares and then you sell them and you buy new ones and is it an eligible replacement asset? And most of the time, it doesn't cut the mustard. So it would only be if you owned BHP shares under a borrowing arrangement and they were fully taken over by Rio and you got sort of script for script that those replacement asset rules would actually cover off. But then there was subsection eight, which said any other asset deemed applicable under the regulations, which is lovely if you have regulations. So there's a lot of issues about if I replace the oven in my rental property or, um, you know, is is that whole property then a replacement asset? So the tax as long office, as you don't update from the 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 Bosch to the Gaganau, I think you're okay, yeah, Gemma. You're no, all right. right. Yeah, <laughs> um, replace like for like. So the tax office did address that. They released a ruling um, in 2012, and it covered off on what is an acceptable replacement asset under those rules for property, as well as covering off a single acquirable asset as property was because there were questions about. So I mentioned property is usually easy. There's a property, let's buy it. But if you mm. like particularly commercial property. I've had one recently where it was a single premises as far as the um, the tenant is concerned, but across two titles. So are those titles distinguishable in that there isn't a bloody great warehouse plonked in uh, across mm. the two of them? So those little practical things were addressed in that ruling, which was really helpful, as well as uh, you can do a lot of stuff to a property before the, it it will have an issue under the replacement assets. So that includes uh, a kitchen renovation, those sorts of things. The big item there is you can't fundamentally change the asset. So you couldn't bulldoze an existing property and build, you know, a mansion. Likewise, you couldn't buy vacant land, vacant land and then put a property on the top of it. So it, it did clarify those. So it's incredibly helpful uh, ruling to have a look at. And that was released in 2012. Yeah, and and that's so important because uh, again, sounds like you get similar questions to me sometimes from people. Well, oh, we want to develop, and I guess that's also important to know. Well, what profession are you in? So, if you're a property developer or you're actually in that space, you can't be seen to be carrying on a business within your super fund. So, really important as well to to get some of those elements done. And I guess to um, where I've seen it work really well uh, could also be on farm land as well. Yeah, so farming land definitely. Have, have bought farming land, um, and again, you can do it under um, 
either a limited recourse borrowing arrangement or just within a, a self-managed super fund structure as long as you meet the, the certain rules around yep. acreage and, and size of land and things. So, um, again, it's all about strategy. It always comes back to the why you're doing this. And I think you hit the nail on the head before, Gemma, in saying, well, what's the exit strategy as well? What is a game plan? Um, you don't necessarily want to be running that business forever or having that rental property forever potentially. What is the, the exit strategy on that front? So I think that's um, that's really important. Um, Gemma, we could talk about limited recourse borrowing all day and I feel like there's even more. Like, is, it, is there a few more things, any other final thoughts or, or things that we, people should be thinking about? The other thing which I sort of touched on very briefly was if you're borrowing from a related party. So, you can do that. There's no restriction on who you can borrow from. And there was quite a lot of talk in the industry when you know, these were in their infancy, um, in you know the 2010 to 2012 type um, periods of time, and and beyond that is if you do borrow from a related party, what's the level of interest you have to charge? How does how does it interact? Because um, there's super rules, and this is particularly um, section 109, which is that a super fund must. Um, deal on an arm's length basis, but if it doesn't deal on an arm's length basis, it can't be detrimented to the benefit Mm. of the other party. So, if I only charge 1% interest to my super fund, I'm not dealing on an arm's length basis, but my super fund is not detrimented at all whatsoever. It's actually getting a bit of a benefit. So, there was areas of that that was tested through the tax office and they issued an ATO um, interpretive decision on that particular sort of matter and said, yep, they, they considered that there's no issue with Section 109. But then it was the flip side of it. Well, I've only charged 1%. The market's 5%. How does that extra 4% get treated? Is that an issue from a an income tax perspective? Like how does – we yeah, haven't covered both sides of the yeah, equation. Yeah. So then mm. we had the issue that that might be classified as non-arms length income. The tax office didn't like it. And ultimately, they released a um, guidance paper, which was in 2016, and a practical compliance guideline and a tax determination that said, right, if you're going to borrow from a related party in your super fund, these are the benchmarks we want to see. And if these benchmarks are covered, then um, you fall within their safe harbour and therefore they won't put any more compliance resources around looking at that particular arrangement. And the reason why that is important is because if you don't fall within the safe harbour, it's not to say that it's not arm's length because if you've got support for that, that's fine. But that's like almost to the point where um, one of the banks offered you those particular loan terms and you just had to sign it, not, oh, I spoke to my broker and he said, here are the terms and it's step one of a five-step process to get the loan. Um if you fall within the safe harbour or you've got that really robust evidence, then it means that you're not at the risk of the income generated on that particular property, including the ongoing rental income and any realised capital gains at the end being taxed at non-arms length rates, which is 45%. So, it was really important to get that right. So, that's another thing with that structure. You can borrow from a related party, you just have to be really careful about how that's done. And then, um, you know, we can talk about this stuff. I can talk about it till I'm blue in the face. All day. All day. It's to sort of throw out there that if the scenario, you know, if your exit strategy is or your intention is it's three years leasing it to a business and then you want to do a development, 
then that's where you've got to come back to the, not quite the drawing board, but say, okay, well, if that's what the intention is, we can't accomplish that with a limited recourse borrowing arrangement. How else could we potentially mm. do it? Um, and then look at those options and the best way to, to structure that. And again, there are lots, there are other options available. So it's mm. really important to look at, I found this property, I want to buy it in my super fund. Okay, that's great, Scott. Um, what do you want to use it for? How long is that going to be? Is it going to wash its mm. base? How are you going to fund it? All those sorts of things to get to the point of saying, yep. actually, let's structure it this way. Or you know what? We can't do it in the fund. It's got to be the family trust. Exactly right. And, and I think you just like you nailed it there as well. With I mean, we see industry super funds all the time. You just need to look outside in, in Melbourne at the moment and you'll see CBUS and other industries. So this, this building is being developed by. And so, again, if you're not borrowing money, um, you, you can do all the development that you want. Um, but again, if you are using those limited recourse borrowing arrangements, you've just got to make sure that you everything is uh, under the rules and uh, you're following the guidance. And you, you touched on some fantastic results resources there the ATOs put out I'll, I'll shout out to the ATO again their, their website is uh, much better than it used to be back in mm. the uh, the early 2000s it used to be a nightmare but there's so many resources there there's the tax determinations there's actually information and guidance on how they assess and review things so you can check out those resources or again uh, the advice is actually I think the crucial part in making sure that you don't uh, don't mess up along the way and I can send you uh, we'll uh can put them in the show notes perhaps what the those actual references are so people can go onto the tax officer's website and look them up. That ruling I mentioned is um, not short, so it might require a few wines or something before you tuck into that. But Like bedtime reading. They do have some excellent <laughs> resources and also they have provided quite a lot of clarity on these areas and it's been pragmatic as well. So mm. I will shout out to the, the tax office from that perspective. They try and address these sorts of queries from industry and provide that guidance mm. so that um, you know, it helps out everyone. Yeah, and, and again, a lot of the time it is that common sense approach, which is which is great. So, Gemma, thank you so much for joining us again. Again, we can talk about this stuff all day, but I'll, I'll add some of those references in the show notes. Your contact details will be there as well. Um, I'll put a link on, as, as I've mentioned in prior episodes, Gemma literally wrote the book on self-managed super funds. So um, thanks again for coming along. Thanks a lot for listening and thanks so much for your feedback. Look forward to speaking soon. Thanks, Gemma. Thanks very much for having me, Scotty. 